coming at you from the frozen tundra that is East Central Alberta, Canada. See, we did it again there, guys. Try to get everything started in the background and it's still feeded back. How are you? <laughs> anyway, coming at you from the frozen tundra that is East Central Alberta, Canada. Streaming live on YouTube, Facebook, Float, Odyssey, Telegram, and Twitch. Welcome back to the workshop. I am Toolman Tim. Today is June 26, 2022, and this is episode 133 of the workshop podcast. Tonight, we have got the one and only Renegade Butcher. He'll be on in just a minute to chat all about everything meat, the most glorious thing that God has ever created. But before that, we will get a little bit of housekeeping out of the way, like always. Three quick announcements for you. Float has finally made the changes we have been hollering for. Love Float, been supporting Float. They put the live streams back on the main page. So the 24-7 workshop radio station will be relaunching tomorrow. So keep an eye out for that. If you're a TikTok user, I never thought I would be, but wow, have I ever had some fun over there so far. If you are and you want to check it out, check out the description below and you can go by and check out the TikTok account. I think we just topped out over like 31, 3200 followers so far. It's kind of cool. And then finally, we're getting really close to being ready to start scheduling out guests for September and October. So if you guys are interested in being on the show, or if you have suggestions of other guests you'd love to have on the show, run by the website, fill out the form, or send me an email at therealtimcook at gmail.com. I'm excited. Uh, it gets booked up. I I've got a bunch that I want to get filled in there. We got probably eight spots. Maybe we'll double some things up. But anyway, either way, reach out to me and we'll get you on. And today's tool. So I figured, since we're talking about meat, what better item to bring up as today's tool than the Smack Digital Instant Read Meat Thermometer? That has been the single thing that has upped my steak grilling game and uh, chicken breast, absolutely everything. It's just the best. If you're looking for something cheap and inexpensive and it does the trick, link is in the description. And from that, let's bring on Josh. Hey, man, how are hey, you? Guys. Uh, great. How are you doing, man? Not bad at all. We got nice. you up and on here and we didn't have a whole lot of feedback issues there every so <laughs> often. That telegram's great, but... That extra step, yeah, I tell you, that just makes audio, it crazy. When that video comes up, I've started like putting my Telegram stream on first before I start StreamYard because then it, I can shut that off before there's anything feeding to it. So that'll work. That's worked okay for me, but yeah, okay. it does. It works. It just sits in there. So, See, yeah. that's why I like I your uh, I like your video. intro video too. You, you like that? Yeah, that's cool. I, I had it built on Fiverr, and that's um that's a nice. tune by Greg Arcade. He uh, nice. he brought that on. So yeah. Mm -hmm. Hey, we got uh, Canadian uh, farmsteads on here. Uh, I can't even tell. Oh, yeah. That might be a Twitch. I see it. Yeah, that's Twitch. Yep. All right. Cool. Right on. Nice. That's good to know. Heck yes. So how you been, Josh? Been good. Been good. Been uh, all over the place. Been doing a bunch of live streams. Been uh, working on the website type stuff. Been trying to work on the whole seasoning project and little small private personal meat stuff on the side here and there. And it's been been keeping me busy on the phone with people for consultations and stuff. So this time of year, it's a little less uh, busy, busy for me in one place. It's more just all the extra little projects that I've been working on kind of coming together. You could, uh, used to be that people made the interview circuit, you know, they'd go around on the uh, late night TV shows and nowadays right. it's podcasts, right? Apparently, right? <laughs> right after Floatfest, it's been like one podcast after the other. And, and I've been having quite a few on my show too. Now that's been, that's been kicking off and 
That's uh, awesome. I'm up to like, uh, I think I'm up to like 11 episodes now, so nothing crazy, but uh, I'm, I'm getting a little less horrible at it. So. <laughs> cool. Well, you know what? I was going to get you to introduce yourself, but I'm going to ask you first. How did you yeah. how'd you get into the, the um, content creation real quick since you brought that up? And then we'll go back. We'll, we'll do things backwards. Well, I, I tried a little bit. Uh, like about a year ago or so before I, I ran into all the, the headache with the state and everything like that. I was trying to do, because my, my main business is pasture to plate processing. I got it up on the hat. You can't really read yeah. it, but it's, uh, I was doing like home processing with pasture to plate processing, trying to do a little podcast thing. I was listening to Jack and Nicole kind of riffing on that. And, you know, it was like, yeah, I could, I could kind of put something out in that niche because there's a need for it. And it was tough because mostly I was doing travel jobs. So I was recording on the road what I can and I got like six episodes, then everything kind of got tipped on its head. And I was like, the last thing I need to do is be online talking about the stuff the state doesn't want me doing until I figure out which way the wind blows and how to sort it all out. So I kind of set that to the side. But then I went to Float Fest and, you know, it was my second year there. I got to meet Brian Norton again, was working with him a bunch, got to hang out with Jack a little bit. And everybody was kind of just ribbing me like, hey, you got a lot of stuff to say. You really should be doing some educational content. And I, yeah. It's like, all right, well, it's that boot in the ass. I know I want to do it, but I need to actually push myself to do it. I can make all the excuses in the world about bad internet connection and whatnot, but sometimes you just got to put your, put your nose down in it and do it. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm proud of you, man. I love, I love seeing it. I love, I mean, it wasn't very long ago that I was just launching my shit. You know what I mean? Right. So I love, I love seeing you do it. You, you got the hustle, man. I'm proud of you. So well, I've, I've been surprised how well it's been received and how much it's really kind of picked up. I mean, it's still not anything crazy. There's not a whole ton of followers, but it's, it's been a good reception. It's been a great community that's built up around it too. I mean, like the little chat group we've got over there for the podcast, man, we've got like over 60 people in there already. And it's, it's, it's popping most of the time. It's awesome. Yeah, you know, you are you're kicking ass and taking names. And I tell everybody the same thing. Remember, when you first start making content, the only people that watch it's your mom and your wife, and even they stop watching right. after a while. So <laughs> pretty much, right? But, but it, yeah, it comes, it's, so it's don't worry. There. Yep. So who is Josh? Where'd you come from, man? And I, I ask everybody the same question, but mm -hmm. tell us what was your first high school job and then where'd you go from there? Right, right. Well, I actually grew up in the Midwest uh, between I was born in Iowa, grew up in Illinois, just right on the other side over by the Mississippi River, a uh, little bit west of where uh, Aaron and Nate from Two Chicks Homesteads are uh, out there. Nice. And, uh, you know, I, I grew up in a smaller town, not really uh, out in the country, but kind of like right on the edge. And my my dad grew up farm family, you know, Iowa beef, corn and everything like that. But he gotten out of it. My mom came from a different uh, environment. I was homeschooled with them. And nice. they were, they had some very interesting, uh, rather restrictive religious beliefs. We'll put it that way. I'd almost call it cultish. Uh, I kind of drifted away from that later on, but we were a very, very stay at home kind of family. I didn't have a lot of friends or get out a whole ton, but I got into the internet, learned all that kind of stuff. Uh, but my first real job while I was in high school, while I was, you know, doing that was a guy down the road, about like 80 years old, came up one day and says, Hey man, can you come like help me once a week? Just mow my yard. Oh, yeah, that's fine. And he took it. He did real. Good. I mean, he paid me like eight bucks an hour, which was above minimum wage for a kid, you know, back then. And always take me to lunch every time we came out and did it, you know, and it was hard work, but it was good for about a 16 year old kid to kind of learn. And then I, I went and worked at the local grocery store that was uh, just down the road. I mean, it, well, I lived on one edge of town. The grocery store was in the other edge of town, like opposite city limits. And I'd walk to work six blocks. If it tells you anything about the size of the town I grew up in. Yeah, so not really, not really very urban. Uh, but I, I kind of did a little bit of everything there, but I never really got into the meat cutting side of things. Uh, I'd help them like, you know, regrind some hamburger now and then or, or stock steaks and 
you know, but I kind of just stocked everything and ran register all over the store. And I did that okay. pretty much until I went to college. And then when I went to college, I ended up working a grocery store overnight while in college, pretty much most of the time. And then kind of later on trip, I was always in and out of that grocery industry thing. It was always an available job and I had the experience in it. So that was uh, uh, kind of my college? big start. Well, I went to school for electronics engineering, actually. I got into ham radio when I was a, a teenager and my dad got into it too. Uh, it was something for us to kind of play with together. And so, I mean, I was, even before then, I was the kid that was always keeping scrap stuff that I found, like the old toaster or, or something like that that broke. I had a Rubbermaid tote in my room of stuff and I would take it apart for the components just to play with it. So I thought for sure I wanted to go and work on electronics for a living. You know, it was a great hobby. When I got into it, you know, I think I did about a year or two and it's just, I kind of got burnt out on it. You know, it was one of those, it wasn't fun anymore. It wasn't, it just, it didn't stick. So yeah, it is what it is. So I moved on and I did some other things. I, I, I don't know that that is like a common refrain in our freedom. Just the a couple entrepreneur like, circuit of, of people. Yeah. Everybody kind of has a thing that they tried really hard to do and then end up drifting away from it. You know, they were told like, you need to have, you need to plan a career when you're like 16, 17 years old. Yes. And there's a mm. ton of us too. I don't know. And we all seem to be attracted to one another and I don't even know how this works, but a lot of people that came out of religious ish families yep. that kind of drifted into this freedom movement, but, aren't maybe tied into what they were tied in. You know, it's weird. Maybe hey, you kind of just... grew up underneath a little bit of a restriction and sort of longed for that liberty and I think decided so. never to end up. You know, I think there is, it's just a whole birds of a feather mentality in a way, you know, everybody who has that mindset. I mean, a lot of us came from. Oh, there we go. There we go. Yeah. Sorry. You said a lot of us came from. A lot of us came from that, maybe that uh, restrictive place where we had to make a choice to find our own liberty and freedom to kind of step out to exit a situation, maybe. And I think that's maybe becomes a recurring part of who you are as a person, you know, like as you move out into the, you know, quote unquote, real world, you find you're not always that free unless you actually choose to find those ways to be free in your own life. So usually that kind of follows and other people that think like that that's cool yeah it's so neat i don't know how many I mean, times <laughs> I'll, I'll be chatting with people and this those couple of different refrains will come up and you're like well and we don't even know we're just kind of attracted to one another right. and then it comes out yep. that's cool so you, is, you did uh, electronic electronic engineering and then you yep. walked away from that where'd you go from there uh once i was working and, and part of it was my fault. Part of it was just, it, I was done with things. Uh, but I was working at, for, on medical equipment. I was doing medical equipment installs and repairs. I pretty much, I was on the road, company truck. Uh, my territory was the entire state of Iowa and half of Illinois. <laughs> there was okay. a, I was a lot on the road, managed my own territory, did all my own stuff. Uh, came in, the whole place was a wreck when I got there, that whole territory. And I, I did about a year's worth of work in six months. Busted ass. And I think I just kind of got everything where it needed to be. And kind of, you know, it just fell out from there. And then on top of that, I started making some poor decisions as a 21 year old. 
and uh, hanging out with all the it. sales guys out partying too much. Ended up getting <laughs> myself a DUI, which made it really hard to deal with the company truck type thing. So it wasn't so much of a thing that it was one of those. Yeah, I ended up fired over it, but I also ended up fired over it because I think I kind of hit that point where I was just like, I'm done. So I just started slacking off. I was young and stupid, but I got out of that and I kind of went back to doing the grocery store thing again, back into that management running department keyholder type thing and did that for a few years. And, you know, it seems like anytime you're in that sort of situation, you end up with that stagnant group of people. There's always that weird little drama crap that goes on and you get tired of it. And you're like, I'm just done. So I walked yeah. out. I finally, the one day said, I am just sick of dealing with this sort of stuff. So I, I grew up in basically a construction project. We were always remodeling the house constantly through my childhood. I, you know, I, I lived out in the garage in the workshop and everything. I was like, I, I could do handyman type stuff. So I put out uh, some mm. Craigslist ads and threw out some flyers. And I mostly did a lot of lawn mowing and stuff. Got myself a little push mower, had myself a work van and uh, started doing little small repairs for old ladies, fixing their water heaters, stuff like that, you know, and, before I knew it, I had a real estate company contact me and said, hey, we've got a bunch of yards we can give you every week. And there's some basic maintenance if you want to take over a lot of that. Yep. And I, I ended up having one or two people working for me. I had two vans going for a while. And and it went really well. It went really well for a while. And I was listening to this, uh, this crazy guy in a Jetta driving around talking about entrepreneurship and everything, too, which really kind of struck a chord with me. And uh, I, I was... I got that bug of that, the homesteading, the wanting to okay. get out and have my own property. And I've been looking for years and it's really hard in the upper Midwest up there where it's all corn country. It's all big ag. It's hard to find decent acreage, decent land. That's either not floodplain or just really, really run down and poor for a really high price. I mean, you're, you're talking about some of the good land out there's like a million bucks an acre. It's crazy. And that was yeah. back 10, 15 years ago. I was really kind of looking. So I was really kind of looking at Texas, keeping an eye on that. There's uh, a lot cheaper land down here. The taxes are a lot better. You know, there's more liberty minded, but I didn't have a reason to be down here. Well, I had some family members that ended up moving down here, getting married. And a lot of the family was visiting back and forth. And it kind of became one of those things. Look, if we end up getting property down there, we can kind of split the place. We can find something. Would you want to move to Texas? And I was like, if I say yeah, I could work with this is not some some complete crap hole, and uh, you're going to be my space. Way, culture mindset, open, let things do do what they do, and they're going to be thinking more of the suburban lawn type mentality. So, right, uh, ended up after about a week. Uh, took took a week off, looked around, found a place that really kind of fit the bill a little higher than what we're looking at. Offer got put in, and for time, by the time we made it back up north, it was accepted. So it was just nice. meant to be, I guess. I've been down here for about eight years now. Um, I sold everything for the the general contracting company, sold most of my equipment other than some tools. I didn't want to haul it all down here with me. And I kind of pre-scouted down here around the area. There's enough people already doing the handyman thing. And a lot of, you know, th there's just a lot of uh, Mexican families down here that that's all they do. So it's really hard yeah, yeah. to come in and compete with that. There's a lot... It's like you can't even undercut people on price for and the, the hmm. market's oversaturated. So it's one of sure. those, eh, you got to know somebody kind of thing to, to be down here working in that industry. So it didn't make sense. I sold all my stuff, came down here, and I said, well, I'll figure out what I'm going to do, but let me find something for now. And it was late summer, fall that I got down here and placed down the road 
little bitty uh, hole in the wall kind of uh, stop by convenience store, but has a small butcher shops, like, you know, a oh. little, little counter and everything like that. They do deer processing every year. It's really big, really big hunting area. Well, they always hire seasonal help to come in. So they just call them deer help. Basically you're unloading deer from the back of people's trucks, packaging sausage when you're not busy, that kind of thing. And they do a lot. They do about two to 4,000 deer a year. So wow. I hired in. And, you know, they kind of figured out I knew how to use a knife and that I was reliable. And, you know, I would, when I show up to work, I work. So, of yeah. course, they always keep about one person around every year if they're worth, if anybody is hired on that's worthwhile. And they ended up training me to be one of the uh, cutters, one of the main meat cutters, because uh, they were down to one guy who was trying to do all of it. And it wasn't a huge area. I mean, we had about a 15 foot, you know, case that mm -hmm. we stocked and kept up with, but it's still a good bit for one guy. Uh, and it's also one of those, it's, it's a recreational town. It's, it's near a major lake. So you get a lot of the people from Houston coming out to their lake houses and stuff. So weekends we get really busy. So they needed yeah. the help. Well, I ended up uh, cutting there, worked my way up to, I was doing butcher work and management, uh, worked there for about three <laughs> years till I moved down, down the line to another place. And I never really planned on to getting into meat cutting or anything like that. Never did that much other than maybe cut up my own deer and did it way wrong before I knew what I was doing. Sure. I'll admit yeah. the first couple were terrible. Uh, but, you know, it's one of those things, for some reason, I just took to it. Like, as I'm working with that meat, and as I'm learning how to, to kind of craft it with a knife, something just kind of clicked. It's like, you know, I feel like everybody has one thing that that's their art. Yes. And you never really know what it is until you stumble on it. You know, you may have more than one thing, but all, everybody has one thing that just sort of clicks and it's second nature. And it may not make sense because it's not something I grew up doing. A lot of guys who are in this industry, it was passed down. It was their whole family. Dad did it, you know, that type thing. And they've always done it since they were a kid. For some reason, I can jump in and I can usually cut right next to a lot of those guys that have been doing it for their whole life. And they're impressed with what I do. But I think a lot of it comes down to my mentality because I've done all these different industries and been in all these situations I've changed up enough jobs. I don't want to just sit and get stagnant. I'm always learning. I'm always a learner. Yep. I observe. And like what I always tell people when they're trying to get into this, if I got somebody new that is, you know, working with me or I'm training them or they're asking me for advice and I'm like, cut with as many different people as you can and learn something from every, every one of them. Even if it's something not to do, there's probably one thing that person does better than you. And you should watch, you should learn, you should try to figure out how to replicate that. But even if it's, something take something away from all of it don't ever think that you've learned it all because as soon as you do you stop learning and that's awesome that, that, is, that is, <laughs> i love that that is, no that is freaking that's great because i i've heard a few people say that and a lot of people don't you know that that's mm. cool i so yeah. how, okay so you're working for someone else so how did you slide mm -hmm. into working for yourself at this point well i was working there and then uh you know i, I kind of got uh, tired of the the environment and the stagnant and some of the people that were there. And there was a place that opened up. It was about a 12 mile drive from my house to this place and about a 12 mile drive the other way. Another place opened up that was doing the same <laughs> thing. And, but they were also not just doing wild game processing. They weren't doing the retail type thing. They were doing the full on like custom exempt slaughter. Like you would bring your animals and get it processed and get your own back. And uh, yeah. they were building that up. So I, I bounced over to them and started working with them um, right before they built that actually helped them build up that part of the building and build up their whole slaughter program, learned along with them. Some of these guys have been meat cutters their whole life, but they hadn't really been into the whole slaughter side much. So 
it was a pretty cool new environment there. And I actually ran that kill floor. We ended up doing state inspected, which was the equivalent of USDA inspected for the region uh, by the time I was done. And uh, I was the one that was out there on the kill floor every day. And when we had inspected days, I had the inspector there with me the whole time. So I learned that the ins and outs of that side really well from that kind of angle. Uh, and of course we got into, we did sausage production and everything like that. I ended up pretty much doing almost everything there, but run their books. So I yes, pretty yes. much knew the whole, the whole industry, the whole shebang of running a processing, you know, business as it was. And then the day came that, uh, well, I mean, I guess you could say the, uh, the old COVIDs hit. Mm. And, uh, once that happens, oh. everything went on its head, you know, we were busy. But we were still kind of coming up. And then yep. a lot of these big processors started shutting down. So all the little guys got overwhelmed and it still hasn't bounced back. People are still booked out six months to a year in most places. It's crazy. You, a lot of times you have to get a butcher spot before you buy the animal to start raising. It's it's pretty insane. So we got overwhelmed, super busy. Uh, of course, everybody's calling, you know, I can't get this animal loaded. I can't bring it to you. Uh, it broke its leg. What can you do? Can somebody come to me? No processors going to be able to do that we get those calls before but they kind of ramped up along with the business so that stuck in my head oh. and uh then the 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 main owner who had kind of opened the business in uh in partnership with his father and they'd done it for his son who had gone to college for meat science uh he wasn't really into it that much he'd made his money pretty much doing insurance sales already uh but so he's really that business-minded kind of person he could cut meat but it wasn't really his his thing he that he wanted to do well it started getting busy started getting profitable so i think something clicked and he came in with that mindset of let's try to tighten the screws so all uh. of a sudden quality started going down for the quantity and it became more about the money than the end results and there was a lot of stuff going on that i wasn't okay with so I get finally, it. there was the final straw day where I, I walked out. I said, I'm not going to do it. Then I'm not going to be a part of this if this is how we're going to operate. And then so I went home and I did that. I sit on the couch for two days and mope about life before I decided to go. I'm going to do something with this. You know, I've learned something. I've learned a trade and a skill that I'm good at that very few people know these days. There are very yeah. few people who understand how to do this. And there's a huge ever growing need for it now. And the more the world goes to hell in a handbasket, like it's been lately, the more we may be in a situation where more people need to know how to do this because we can't rely on decentralized systems nearly as much as we we used to, you know. So Absolutely. rather than just look at the whole system and shake my fist at it, I decided to be part of the solution. And I posted some ads up and said, hey, look, independent butcher, I have knives, we'll travel. We'll figure it out. I don't have all the equipment, but call me up. We'll figure it out. We'll find out what we need to do to get you taken care of. And I'll take care of it at your place. Because on the books in Texas, there's actually a, a exemption to the state health code that basically says as long as it's your meat, your property, and it's not anything else, you're not selling it. They have no jurisdiction to inspect or basically intervene, which is nice. great. So I was like, well, great. Everything we'll do is going to be your meat, your place. It doesn't go anywhere. I'm just a you know independent contractor. And that was great for about two weeks. Decided to show up and tell reads, but that's not how they're going to enforce it. So <laughs> oh. I had that uh, that fine little run in, and and the only reason that ever uh, came to a head was because someone else who kind of broke into the mobile side in this area, uh, a competitor, they went and talked to the state where there was no there was no path to licensing a mobile processing unit in Texas until oh. about two years ago. 
And they went and basically told the state, hey, look, we're going to make this happen. We'll do whatever we need to do to do it. And then once that happened and they had that, they came out of nowhere. They just started using the state as a weapon to enforce force their competition out basically i had some good friends of mine same thing kind of happened uh where state showed up and says you've got to quit doing this because now there's a license for it and it's oh. great yeah the license doesn't cost you anything but you have to have a specific mo mobile rig that's set up with a lot of these other rules that were borrowed from the brick and mortar rules that are already in place which are kind of silly and so it's a huge financial investment if you got to build something up for the state to inspect and license that facility and then you can go back to what you're doing. So it took them, it set them back about a year. Um, oh. Once they got everything built out, they built it themselves. It took the state six months to come actually look at it, start the approval process. So I'm going down that same path right now. So okay. that's been a part, a big part of why I've branched out to doing the consultation and the educational side, as well as the content creation side pretty heavily too. I can still do wild game. It falls under a whole different set of rules. Um, ah. I do that pretty heavy all fall. But outside of that, I, I try to keep my time busy between helping ranchers and, and farmers and homesteaders learn how to process their own by showing up and being like, look, I, I will guide you through the process and then hopefully doing more with the online education stuff, too. I love it. That's cool. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you're teaching and making money and mm -hmm. yeah. And, and you're That's also tough. you're working through the the beautiful, arduous government approval process too oh, at the yes. same time, right? Yep, pretty much. And, you know, it's one of those, part of me doesn't even want to play their game. Part of me just wants to stay rogue about it. But, you know, at the same time, there's enough extra business and enough people that I can help if I do get through that approval yep. process. So we're looking at that. The The first steps, I've got to get the right truck, the right platform and build up from there. I'm pretty much looking at about a 20-foot box truck and there's some a lot of modifications that have to be done to kind of make this... Uh, you know, able to to fly by the state standards. Uh, Texas is the only state in the continental United States that I'm aware of. And this is from the horse's mouth. I had an inspector tell me this, that we're the only ones that require you to do all of the skinning in a completely enclosed area indoors. Even really? California, Nevada, Illinois, New York, doesn't matter. You can skin outside as long as everything is clean, broken down. And then the processing happens inside and they regulate that inside portion. In Texas, no, I'll literally have to build an enclosed area to do the skinning and slaughter in from a mobile perspective, which is a challenge. It's doable, uh, yeah, it is. but I've got to get creative with it. So, yeah, and I'm trying to keep it all too where I can drive it on a Class C and not have to mess with the CDL. So, but I, when I get that built out, I'm also planning on making it a dual purpose thing though too. I want to use it as an educational tool because I'll have the license that allows me to, as long as everything's pre-bought, it's like cow shares, I'll be able to yep. process for the owners of the animal anywhere on property. I have permission to do so. It doesn't have to be as restrictive as the personal use stuff. So I'll be able to run classes. I'll be able to get yep. people more involved there and I'll be able to set it up with some cameras and stuff and have it almost set up like a little recording studio to demonstrate some of this stuff more hands on and actually do more of like a professional video YouTube type thing. That's going to be something you, you can comfortably watch and, and see what I'm really talking about. Not a shaky phone cam bloody hand type thing you know <laughs> <laughs> i love it that's cool man so let's slide a little bit over that i'm man that, mm -hmm. yeah um so where i mean obviously you're passionate about teaching other people how to do this now yes. my dad was, was a butcher is well he's retired now but he, he started at 17 right. he he taught me of course you know it's funny you don't think your dad knows anything until you hit like 25 and then all of a sudden you're like shit he knows everything you realize you know, the wisdom so, there. Yep. Yeah. And he, he taught me how to, you know, he, he taught me with chickens and a little bit of pork, mm -hmm. but I've only done a bit, not a ton. Right. So right, right. if, if I'm a, cause of course 
again, with the whole COVID thing in March 2020, there yeah. were so many people that decided, hey, homesteading's for me, or I need to take control mm -hmm. of the food source. And they want to be more connected to their food supply. Exactly. Mm -hmm. But they don't have the first sweet friggin' clue on how to kill an animal, how to clean an animal, how to pardon mm -hmm. an animal, how to freeze an animal, where the hell they start. Nope. And there's a lot of people too who just get into hunting who don't even have a clue yes. either how to process their deer. I see a lot of that too. I mean, if not at all knocking anybody, I'm glad people are looking for uh, freedom and liberty and everything too, but it, it always gets to the Texans. But one of the first questions I usually get when somebody new calls me up down here is, I just moved here from California and we're raising XX, whatever, blah, blah, blah. What do we do? You know, they, everybody kind of gets the cart before the horse gets into it. And yep. uh, then they're like, whoa, what? So there's, there is a big need for it. There's a, but there's a, a lot of people who want to learn. So I will give a ton of credit for that too, because so many people sit around and don't want to do anything. So, um, but yeah, uh, if they want to get into it and learn, I'd say the best things you really can do would be probably follow the Liberty Meat Solutions podcast. I'm just <laughs> shameless show. There. No, no, it's but no, I, I there's it. a lot of good resources out there. There's a lot of good resources uh, online. Uh, on YouTube. Um, but if you can reach out to either see if there's a mobile butcher in your area, if you're not confident with what you're doing, uh, most of us are going to be willing to come out to you and do it, but also educate you and show you how you're doing it, give you the feedback on what you're doing and maybe ways to improve it in the future. And you don't necessarily get that when you bring an animal to the processor because they're busy and they don't have time to sit and educate you how to do what they consider your job. Um, it's a little bit different when we show up and we're dealing with you, your setup, your animals, your property and everything like that. So that I think helps a lot. But if you don't have that there, there's a great online community. Um, we've got it over on the Telegram chat. That that really helps out. And I reach out and help a lot of people that when they have questions. Um, but if you had to pick right now one YouTube channel that's like going to help to kind of the, the, the real, I guess, meat and bones of it, no pun intended, would be like the Bearded <laughs> Butchers. You check them out. Oh, well, yes. they've got a great yeah, uh, setup, but it's they're, they're got like a whole USDA facility, all clean, everything super clean, but very professional, like retail quality. But also, they got all the toys. They've got the fancy bandsaws. They got the exactly perfect uh, floor set and everything like that. And ninety percent of people don't have that at home, but it's good to look at it in the situation how it should be done to get the best results and then you can do the best you can to replicate it from there so i think your biggest considerations are food safety uh, people okay. don't know so do a little bit of reading into that, like how to properly handle meat what temperatures you need to do keeping your hands clean keeping the meat clean as you go you know those best practices are really really important and getting that meat chilled down as fast as possible and then not having try not to work with half the animal at a time while you're still learning it and you're slow at it keep as much as possible refrigerated, safe, cools, and work with a small section at a time as you learn how to process that cut so you're not going to overwhelm yourself with a bunch of stuff and have a bunch of meat sitting out spoiling. What's the temperature like down there during hunting season? Uh, it depends on the year, but it's usually pretty, still pretty hot at the beginning. Like, uh, it's not uncommon for the first, like, opening weekend of deer season to be, like, 85 degrees for a high. Uh, oh my god sure yes i know biggest... a lot of times i mean we may hit some freezing temperatures in the like towards the tail end of deer season but it usually hardly even gets that cold i mean we're talking like a chilly night down here in like december is low in the 40s oh yeah for us so. i mean the first week of november deer season 
the, the mm. hardest thing is to keep it from freezing, you know, because you hang it in oh, your yeah. garage, right? You just you just throw it in your yep. garage and you leave it there. Oh, and yeah. then when it's time to cut and then it when up, it's frozen, it stays in rigor mortis and you're trying to cut up a brick. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's just frozen you know, solid. <laughs> get a saws all out and get it going, yeah. you know. And so what's the down here we have the opposite oh. problem. Uh, okay, Go ahead. No, fine. Sorry. Fine. I cut you uh, it, we have the opposite problem down here and we get a lot of flack from guys up north. Like I'm in a lot of different deer processing groups and I kind of watch, you know, people banter back and forth and everybody up north is always saying, oh, I would never let water touch my deer. Those crazy southerners, they soak their deer in ice water and everything. It's, like, it's not supposed to be done that way. There are guys who do it that way, but you do have to get that meat chilled as fast as possible. And when it's 75, 80 degrees outside, yeah, if you don't get that meat chilled down fast, you may not have a walk-in cooler to hang it in. And that's your only option if you don't have a 40-degree garage to hang it in right. overnight. So we pretty much, most most of the time, if I get deer down here, if they aren't shot fresh close by, brought to me to skin, and I'll put them in the walk-in cooler if I've got access to it. But uh, most of them, they get skinned and quartered and put on ice on site and then brought back to me. Really? So for a lot of guys, okay. a lot of deer processors down here will just keep deer on ice until they get them cut. So it's it's very different from that that angle because there's a lot of guys doing deer processing, you know, in a, a room they put up in their barn or they rented a building for it. They do it seasonally or whatnot, but they're not running a butcher shop all year round. And for those guys, they usually don't have a room to, to hang all of these deer and walking coolers and whatnot. So it's pretty common for a lot of deer to stay on ice. And while I don't like having it that way in our climate it's, it's one of the it's just part of it you know if you're doing it at home you don't you like it that way that. well when you take a red meat like uh, like venison beef or whatnot and it stays in prolonged contact with water it does absorb a lot of that water the water does leach a lot of the flavor and the color out of the meat it sort of dilutes it's it's sort of like if you know the difference between uh, like water bathed chicken versus like air dried chicken there is a yep. significant difference in how plump and that bird is. The texture is different. There's more intense flavor in the air dried. It's that same deal. It's just more pronounced with the red meat because we have to okay. cool it for longer, typically. So it's more contact with that water. That makes sense. So when the guys pack it with ice or whatever, they shoot a deer. Mm -hmm. What do they just take? Do they ice bags or do they put it right in a bath of water? A lot of guys will try. A lot of guys will try to keep it dry, but most of the time it just gets piled in the ice. And I think that's probably the best way because a lot of times deer out in the field that I see, people have a hard time keeping it sanitary, getting hair and the leaves and everything off of it. So the ice does kind of help wash some of that off a little bit. It's not the best environment for it, but it is what it is. Uh, it's a little bit different than trying to deal with a controlled environment. Um, see try to keep them dry uh, and usually it doesn't work well. Typically the solution is we put it in like a glad trash bag and every once in a while there's at least one per season. Some guy uses a scented trash bag and doesn't think of it. You open oh. up the cooler and wonder why everything smells like lilacs and the oh meat's been soaking God. in it. And no matter what you do, you can't put meat in a trash bag, put it in ice and think it's going to keep the water out. It doesn't work. But they try and I'll give them the credit for that. But that's that's an example of a lot of guys don't know. They just, they've not been a part of that environment of how to handle meat in a safe way. And, you know, I feel like maybe, maybe we down here, we make everybody who gets a hunting license in the state of Texas, I think after 1984 or something goofy like that, uh, they all have to go through a safety course, which teaches you great stuff, you know, and ways to not shoot yourself, you know, and some basic hunting ideas and stuff. I've been saying, look, if we're going to require people to do this. Why don't we also teach them how to properly process their deer, properly skin it, properly handle it, break it down, because they'll ticket you for wanton waste if you leave it to rye. 
but we don't teach you how to actually handle it the right way. So I feel like there needs to be more That'd education be on idea. that side. And I, I've thought about running a class on it, but I can't really go out and just, just get theater because it's a regulated animal. So I might do something like a month or two before the season. It cut up there. Sorry, I saw a blip on screen, but yeah, lost you for a yeah, second. No, you're fine. There I'm you rambling go. anyway. No, no, it's all right. No, I, I love there the idea. That. Yeah. Okay. So let's, um, so I where do you, the, uh, okay. nice to do is just the logistics haven't quite come together yet. That's okay. I love it. What, so <laughs> if, if you have somebody, some poor Californian or New Yorker, who's, you know, right. relocated to Texas and they've already bought the animals. They, they might've bought wiener pigs or they might've bought, you know, 35 right. meat birds, whatever it happens to be. Where, where do they start now? I mean, you said, right. you know, the, the bearded butchers are good. Um, do, do you call somebody? Mm -hmm. Do you, what, what would you think? Well, I think if you, yeah, get, you know, give me or to me a call. If you, uh, if you don't reach on out, go on over to the, uh, there's a telegram group called the Liberty Meat Chat. Just okay. Really meet there's 60 people in there right now. Uh, and there's a bunch of good people in there. I'm in there and uh, we talk about the podcast and everything a lot, but we talk about the process and you can get a hold of me there. You can follow me on LinkedIn. But if I'm not close to you and I'm closer to you, come to you, show you, I might know somebody I can kind of refer. Uh, if not, though, I have no problem kind of like giving people guidance over the phone and things like that or through through an email or text. I do that a lot, too. But if you're in the area, if you're not in Texas or whatnot, look around, do a little bit of a Google search on the, you know, mobile processors in your area. Most of them are willing to do some education. And if not, I mean, most of the information on how to properly process these animals are out there. You know, if, if nothing else, almost every state has a resource and PDFs and diagrams and everything of what they require for, you know, for establishment, so maybe you can't meet all those requirements at your place, but it gives you an idea of what you should be striving for, hopefully. And sure. uh, that—that's a good place to go. But there's a ton of YouTube videos and content and everything out there. Basically, the information is out there if you want to look for it. But uh, I'd say if, if you are around here or in the space and you're wanting to learn, uh, check us out. Check out the podcast I got going on and everything. And that's a good place to start. And like I said, if we don't have an answer for you, we know somebody that does. So if, if somebody wants to learn by themselves, just go to YouTube University, mm -hmm. what animal would you say would be the best one to start with? I think the easiest things probably are going to be rabbits. Rabbits I and then maybe quail. Say that. And quail? Mm -hmm. I mean, quail is really easy. I mean, they're easy to raise. They're easy to process. Um, if you've ever done like dove or something like that, it's a small bird. You're not going to pluck the whole thing. You're not, you don't need a chicken plucker. You're pretty much going to come in and, and, and skin the little thing, pop its head off, skin the thing, take the, the legs off, and you're going to have a couple little bre breast cutlets and maybe some little legs. And that's all you're going to get out of it. But you can, if you get quick at it, it's almost like processing fish. You can knock one or two out in a couple minutes. You know, I could sit down with like 50 of them, probably have them done in an hour. And I don't even like to process poultry that much. That's not something I focus on much. I will do it. I'll do my own calls. But I don't usually bother with much with the teaching and educational side on it because I... I don't focus on it professionally. I do more of the large animal type stuff, but uh, there are a lot of other people that do. And I've tried to bring them on my show too, because they have a different perspective than me, but rabbits, I mean, shoot, I've hunted rabbits. I've done 
you know, domestic rabbits. I raised a few of my own. Uh, I kind of got out of it because our climate's really too hot for it down here to, without uh, some real considerations for keeping them cool in the summer. But a rabbit, you can almost do without a knife. Like you can almost just tear the skin and peel it and skin the thing without a knife and then gut it by hand and put it in the bag. It's so super easy to learn to do. That's crazy. Their chickens are much the same thing, but you're adding that. Oh, I know I just cut out there, didn't I? No, uh, you're good. Your chickens, you're adding, you're adding that plucking. To yes. It too. And then you have to decide, do I want to pluck? Do I want to skin? There's a little bit more. I'd say that's the graduation of if you want to start with the easiest things, go with like rabbits or quail and then move up to like a larger poultry from there. What's, uh, what's the easiest way to dispatch a rabbit? You know, I've, I've seen all kinds of different ways. I've seen people who just swear with, with, you know, a 22 to the head, which seems almost like a waste for a rabbit. But I know yeah, Nate over there at Two Chips Homestead, they're, uh, they're real big on, they like this hopper popper type thing, which is almost basically almost a rack that mounts on a wall that uh, it looks to be like the, the head goes up in it. It's cervical dislocation. Uh, mm. Basically the head gets slides up in like a fork and it's just a quick pull and it's like instant. They're out. It severs the spine. Uh, some people do the broomstick method, which is basically the same thing. It just takes a couple of hands. Uh, basically the animals put down a uh, broomstick or something is put down on the back of the skull uh, with like pressure weight and it pretty much just snaps their neck instantly. So it's instantly out and done. Um, some folks just want to do the whole quick bleed and everything like a rabbit. I don't want to do that with a mammal. I feel like there's just enough going on there. I don't, I think they're going to be conscious for too long. So if I didn't do either of those methods, I think the next uh, most humane would be probably air rifle to the head and then okay. bleed it. We always, for our chickens, it so. was always, an, uh, we, we had a, a big chunk of wood with two nails that you put their head through and then just boom, right off with the ax. And it was, mm -hmm. it was done. You know, it was quick and painless and they yep. were. That's another way I, I come to mention that the ax or, and that's actually what I usually do with poultry because I'm only doing a couple. So I don't want to mess with setting up kill cones and everything. Uh, I'll put out a, a block and I have a big heavy cleaver and I just, you know. Yeah, Here, and then lay them on the back for a couple of minutes. Know what's going on, you know? And yeah. I think I think probably one of the most important things with that for people is you're going to be timid with it. You're going to you're going to want to hold back. You feel bad. Don't be be definitive. Be don't hold back and try to be soft and gentle. Where the animal suffer more. Your comfort, what is necessary to do it? Just don't feel like you're doing that animal any favors by trying to just uh, don't half-ass it. You're you're killing the thing. You got to find that place inside. I don't know how to explain it, but there's this spot inside that you can. I don't want to say shut off. I had to learn how to do it because I remember the first time I chopped the head off a chicken, I was almost sick to my stomach. I felt weak. I was like, oh my. And then after that, yep. And then you know when we mm -hmm. shot our pigs, it was different. But you just have to. You have to know yep. that you're doing it the right way. And even and you don't the more of a pet, it. the closer you are to that animal. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. The, the more yeah, interaction you had with that animal and the closer you got to it, the harder it's going to be because there's a psychological aspect to it. Uh, it's, you talk to anybody that was in the military and they call it compartmental. Uh, they've, they've got to get in that space where they can, they can kill a person. And it's, you know, it's, you don't have to be cruel. You shouldn't be right. cruel about it. You you should be doing it for the right reasons. The fact that we're able to do it ourselves means that we're capable of being more humane than somebody who, imagine if you mm -hmm. have to do that all the time, every day, day in and out, you become numb to it. And eventually, unless you're a specific type of person, you probably start 
to get it's just a job it's yes. just a thing you don't see it as a living being anymore you know thankfully i, I never slipped into that but i have people and it's it's a hard job to be in when you just got to end something's life you know 10 to 20 times a day every day so it's hard to not lose that part of who you are um you're not going to run into that situation probably when you're doing something at home but the thing with that is you have to call back on in yourself on what, why am I doing this? What's the purpose? And generally the purpose right. for that is going to be, you want to do it better than would be done otherwise commercially. You could go to the store and buy meat. You're probably not saving a ton of money raising it at home. Now, pretty soon in the near future, you might be, but if you set it up, uh, you're probably not saving a ton of money. Most of the time you're getting into this for self-sufficiency because you're more concerned with welfare and benefits of the animal to you than the stuff at the store. Well, because you care, you're going to do a better job. You're going to, you're doing it for the right reasons. That animal is going to die, whether you kill it or not. That animal is going to go into the food supply. An animal is going to die for you to, to eat. So if you are making the choice to do this the right way and take that responsibility, which I think everybody who eats meat probably should at least once in their life, take responsibility for at least one life that they're going to consume so they can understand and respect that and where it comes from. Well, that's going to put you in a different mindset, but don't let it make you so timid that you don't do the job to your best of your ability for that animal. So it's a, it's a tricky balance and probably you'll make mistakes, but do everything you can in the world ahead of time. I just talked about that in my last podcast, do everything you can ahead of time to pregame and kind of plan, you know, get everything set up so that you have every chance of succeeding. And if there is a mistake, you're in a position to take care of it and fix it right there instead of it being an absolute tragedy. And, uh, <laughs> might sound stupid or, or corny, <laughs> but uh, self-talk as well. Uh, you know, um, uh -huh. how do you put it? Like, uh, you know, when you're getting ready for sports and you, you talk to yourself, like mentally prepare yourself the best you can. It's not easy. Yep. Right. But that is, that's a big part of it. Yeah. No, no, no. And if you ever find yourself in a position where you actually, I always tell people I enjoy my job. I don't enjoy the actual act of killing the animal, sure. you know, but it's a part of the job. I enjoy the fact that I'm good at it and I, I, I get, it's rewarding to me to be able to do that or show someone how to do that the right way, because I've had the experience to be able to do that in a way that most people don't ever get that opportunity to do so. So I can actually raise the bar on the the level of ethics that, you know, can be involved in the situation. That animal is going to be in a better situation and, and probably suffer less because I know exactly how to do it the right way. So there's a certain fulfillment in that for me, but I don't enjoy the actual killing. If you ever find yourself actually enjoying that killing part, you may want to seek some help. <laughs> I, 100%, I was just going to say that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> But, you know, everybody, so, I get that question, though. They're like, man, you've got to be like a psychopath to want to do this. I was like, no, man, I don't do it because I enjoy the killing part. I do it because it's something that needs to be done, and I'm good at it. I'm glad I can spread that information to other people, you know? Yeah, I love it. So us as preppers, we love our gear, right? <laughs> um, mm -hmm. It's just funny. But oh, so yeah. if what would you, if I wanted to, say, start butchering pigs or something like mm -hmm. that, what, let's start with... A, what knives? What, what kind of knives would you say somebody should without breaking the bank or, or where would you start for a good butcher's knife or whatever? Well, I'd say it depends on, I, I'm a big fan of 
I like different knives for different, different functions, you know, different yep. knives do different jobs very well. And I'm actually going to cover some of that in, the, in my podcast. I've got a podcast series. I just started yesterday, actually, uh, where I've been talking about a lot of equipment considerations for when people are starting to do the processing. So I, yesterday I kind of went over different types of firearms that I, I recommend for most at home slaughtering. Um, I did talk about one of the knives I use for, uh, initial bleed uh it's like a buck 119 i think it's the one i typically use um okay. it's a real sturdy heavy duty uh, they, they call it a buck special but it's uh it's a i think it's got a six or seven inch blade um and it's a fixed blade i don't like folders for that kind of thing but that's yep. a really heavy duty knife it's going to do a lot of the the big grunt work for you as far as the bleed you can disjoint with it you can skin with it it's not the best skinning knife but it will do the job and uh, from there, yeah, I, if you want to have multiple knives that are going to be able to kind of get you through this, um, I would go for a decent beef skinning knife. Victorinox is pretty affordable, and most of their knives are pretty good. Uh, another good one to look at is uh, the there's Dexter Russell makes really good knives. Um, okay. On top of that, Cold Steel has a commercial line now. I didn't know that until last year, I and I actually that. got one of their uh, six-inch semi-flex straight boning knives, and I actually love that knife. Um that's probably going to be my one, my number one. If you had to pick one knife for either poultry processing, doing deer, doing your your finer work on things like uh, like pork and beef, that really works well. It's got a little bit of flex, like a fillet knife, but not quite as flexy. Uh, and it's really good for doing all kinds of joints. It holds a good edge, and it's got a really nice grip on it. A lot of the commercial knives kind of oh, have a yeah. grip. It's got a really good textured grip that's actually still easy to clean. So that's that I, I think I'll probably buy at least another one of those and I might try some other knives from that line. And then usually like a butcher, what they call a breaking knife, an eight to 10 inch, a straight butcher yeah. knife for bigger stuff like a hog or especially in the beef. When you're doing large steak cuts, big roast cuts and you want it to look good, you can get it done with a smaller knife, but it's going to make your life a whole lot easier and the end product look nicer if you've got a big slicing knife, too. But if you did just get that buck knife and you had some decent kitchen knives that are sharp and you know how to maintain those edges, you can probably get through most anything at home too. That's cool. So how, how about a grinder? Um, I, I bought one at Cabela's a couple of three, mm -hmm. four years ago. I was very happy with it. Did you um, get the, one of the Cabela carnivores? The, I think the so. Big, I can't even, one, like, yeah. Was it one of like the big horsepower motors or like uh, yeah, it was one of the three table quarter or one horse? Yeah, it was probably, probably. It was, Probably like size 22 or 32 head. Yep. Those are pretty decent. Um, now I will say, and I don't know for sure. I don't know all of the ins and outs on this. I think Cabela's changed manufacturer on their grinders a couple years back. So yeah. I've been hearing some mixed reviews on some of their new ones, especially the large size. I had a friend that's uh, running a mobile processing trailer in Oklahoma, got one of those and it had nothing but trouble until they kind of learned it's a really finicky grinder. Okay. So I don't know. I'm not going to recommend those because I, I, I thought about getting one myself as a backup grinder and shied away from it after hearing it. From what I understand right now, the ones that I can say are pretty dang decent that I've used myself are going to be either LEM. They're larger, uh, LEM Big Bite, which usually size 32 or up head. You could get by with something smaller, but I always say over by the grinder. It's yeah, little grinders get hot quick. And in, if you're doing a lot at a time, if you're doing whole animals at a time, it's going to be hard to get through. You're going to have, it's going to, slow you down. Uh, if you okay. want to grind 10, 20 pounds of sausage, you know, twice a year, you probably can get by with a medium sized grinder, but you're probably never going to sit back and go, dang it. I wish I hadn't bought such a big grinder. I promise you, you won't. True. So LEM's pretty good. 
one that I've heard a lot of good, and I'd be pretty confident in wrecking them, is the Weston. And one nice thing about the Westons and some of the Cabela's is they've actually got a function where you can reverse the motor. So if you do get kind of bound up, you know, in there, without having to take the whole thing apart, you can back it up sometimes and get yourself out of yep. a bind. Um, it, there is one. There's a, I think the company is called Meat with an exclamation point. They've uh, <laughs> come out within the last few years. And they've got a lot of discount type stuff. It's, uh, you know, not the not top of the line type things, but it basically looks like it's the same thing as Cabela's and Weston, probably by the same manufacturers. It's just that cheap label. Um, yeah. And I've heard good things about them. Uh, they're a little bit, you could probably save a couple hundred bucks versus buying one of the big brand names. Going with them, I won't necessarily say that I've used them. Uh, I do have one customer that has a, um, a guide gear, I think. Yeah, they got it at a Costco, but it's guide... It's uh, you can actually go on like guidegear.com. They have all the discount sporting goods. And yep. I believe it's just a relabeled Cabela's, you know, it, it, it seems like all the same. It looks exactly the same. The motor setup is the same and he got a heck of a deal on it. So keep an eye out. Look at the secondary market too. look on like Facebook marketplace and Craigslist and next door and stuff. A lot of times guys will buy one of those, use it a couple times a year and either turn around and sell it later on. Or, you know, some old guy, unfortunately passes away and his widow puts it up on auction or something like that. You can get some good deals if you keep an eye out, but uh, yeah, you might have to change capacitors in the motor one or something like that, but you're probably going to save yourself a lot of money if you can pick up a good used one, as long as all the plates and parts are there. So try to look up, you know, the parts manual for it or something, if you're in question and see if there's something missing, you know, try to make sure everything's there. Worst case scenario, take a picture of what you're looking at and send it to somebody like me or a butcher, you know, and go, hey, is this a good deal? So what about you might okay. be looking at spending five to eight hundred dollars on a good grinder right now? I believe. Yeah. Any of that stuff. Like, yeah. So I know we've had a conversation about this before, but mm -hmm. you're not a uh, how come you're not a pink paper kind of guy? <laughs> <laughs> well, I've never been a big. So it was actually the place that I worked at uh, the. I started at doing the deer help. Uh, we did everything paper wrapped behind the counter. It was actually a white paper. We didn't do the pink butcher paper, but we did the white with the plastic back too. But I've, I've used yeah. both. And, you know, we have, we've always had it available at other places I've worked at too. We've had it available at the grocery store. So I'm familiar with it. I know how to use it. But, you know, if you stack them up, if you paper wrap something really well, it's going to have a pretty good shelf life. and It keeps a lot of the air out, but it's still not an air type seal or airtight sure. seal. I don't care who you are. I don't care how tight you wrap something. You can try to squeeze the juice out of that piece of meat. You're never going to get that paper wrapped completely airtight the way a vacuum seal bag would. And then between the time and just that, the aspect of all the advantages of the vacuum seal, the tiny little increase that might be there in cost for vacuum sealing, I think is probably more than worth it. And from my perspective, because I buy my bags and everything in bulk when I'm doing deer season. And, you know, if I'm helping with larger processing, I'm buying it in a, a larger scale. I actually find it's a little bit cheaper on materials for me to go with the vacuum sealing. And it's a little bit faster on the actual processing side. So you get the advantage of longer shelf life, less freezer burn meat. You can see what the cut is. You actually, it's a clear bag versus just a regular, a, a white paper wrapped hunk that you hope somebody labeled right. Yeah, it's a mystery meat until it's thawed. Uh, you know, there's just too much else that uh, that stacks up in favor of vacuum sealing to me. So if people ask me occasionally because their family has always done it, will you paper wrap? I'm like, yeah, if you buy the paper and you wrap with it, that's fine. I'll, I'll paper wrap. <laughs> 
did I uh, did I tell you the story? I don't know. Anyway, well, years ago at the co-op back in my town, there was an old guy that would come in and buy the paper wrapped cheese at the time. It used to come in the same type of butcher paper. You told me the story, yes. And so anyway, eventually it came to plastic and the old fella came in one day. Oh, that cheese is no good for nothing. He said, it's just, it tastes awful. Tastes like plastic. Tastes like plastic. Yep. Yeah. He wouldn't buy it anymore. So the butcher, the guy, because back then they handled the cheese too, right? So before Mm -hmm. the old guy come in anymore, he would take it out of the plastic, wrap it in paper and then sell it to the guy. And after that, wow, that's the best cheese I've ever had. He said, of course, it's all psychological, right? So what uh, what do you use for a vacuum sealer and bags? Well, for uh, the vacuum sealer, I, I've been using multiple different little Nesco tabletop vacuum sealers for a while, uh, and you know they're they're better than a food saver. They were a little cheaper than the food saver, but they uh, you know they still get hot. They they only run for so long. Uh, but they were cheap. I get them for about 75 bucks, but I think they may have quit making the model I was using. So I haven't been able to find them. I've gone through four or five of them in the course of about two, three years, but it didn't cost me much to just replace them. They're lightweight and they're portable. And a lot of times I'm loading the stuff up in the back of a car to take it somewhere. So I did upgrade later on. I got a really good deal on a commercial level tabletop unit. Unfortunately, okay. it was an odd size ceiling bar, and it finally popped on me after like a year of hard use, and I haven't been able to get a replacement for that. So sure. I've been kind of scripping by with one little vacuum sealer for a bit. I really want to use a chamber vacuum sealer, though, ideally. Uh, Jack and I talked about this on his show the other day a little bit, too. Uh, and I think VacMaster is probably the best brand in that. You're going to spend some money on it, but it's probably worth it, and it's useful for a lot of stuff other than just processing meat. But it's a big, bulky, clunky unit. So until I have the whole mobile truck set up with it i don't want to deal with it because i don't want to load this big giant like printer sized box like copy machine sized box that weighs about 120 pounds in and out of a car everywhere i go but the big advantage to that is you can get by with cheaper bags when you do the tabletop like food saver type vacuum sealers you know as one side's always textured yes it's because it has channels to allow the air to get pulled out when you do the chamber vacuum sealers, everything that you seal is enclosed inside the dome, inside the machine. So it brings everything in the chamber to an equal pressure. It flushes all the air out. So it doesn't matter whether there's, you know, texture on that bag, it's forced out by the vacuum. So you could vacuum, you could take a chip bag, a Doritos bag and vacuum seal it. It doesn't matter. Any bag that's in there is going to get vacuum sealed and heat and heat sealed shut. So they're really oh, handy for that. So you can get by yeah. with bags that cost you about a third as much. So in the long run, it does pay for itself, but you've got to do quite a significant amount of vacuum sealing to kind of offset that investment too. But if you've got a space to do it and you're looking to get into it, especially large animals or a lot of poultry and you're doing a ton of it, I'd probably look at a chamber vac before I'd uh, spend money on on just a tabletop little cheapo sealer because they can be frustrating you're probably going to have one out of three bags you're gonna have to reseal yes i hate it that's why when you told me that you liked vacuum sealing i mean in theory i love vacuum sealing but that's right the the goddamn problem with it is that about every third time i suck sucks Mm -hmm. juices up into there and right. do you get any tips right. now there's me not be an idiot yeah there are some tips there are some tips on that 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 is a lot of it I, i've learned a lot dealing with these things uh for so much like over three years almost every day vacuum sealing a ton um and they can be very frustrating at times and every once in a while that vacuum <laughs> sealer if you've been using it hard sometimes those vacuum sealers get a little bit hot 
and they're not yeah. pulling as good of a vacuum, or you, you just may need to lay, step away and give it a break. But typically when you're dealing with that exact issue with the juices getting sucked up into the seal, or you're getting, when you put that piece of meat or whatever you're putting in there in the bag, you've got that grease and that moisture all over the inside yep. of the bag from that first thing you can do is before you ever do anything, clean hands, take that bag, cuff it out like about a thumb, put your thumbs in, cuff it out about one time, do it again, do it twice. Now oh. I'll load it up, your hands off, wipe the bag off, uncuff it, it's a clean surface. And now it can actually get a good seal. And then most of your tabletop vacuum sealers will have a, a manual seal function too. So if you're doing something that's like a marinated meat or it's just extra juicy, there's a lot of water because it's a chicken. Watch that juice as it goes up that texture. You, you want all the air out. Push as much air out as you can before. Watch that juice as it starts to suck up. And before it gets to the seal bar, hit that manual seal. And just it stops vacuuming, seals it right there. You don't get the juice into the seal itself. So it does take you being observant and watching what's happening. You can't always just push the button and walk away like we'd like to do when we're busy. But it's you'll get a better result and have to fight it less then. Uh, I will find, though, too, probably maybe one out of 20 bags. You're just going to find a bad bag. Maybe you had a pinhole, maybe a bone poke through. That is another frustrating thing. If you're dealing with bone-in cuts... Try to make sure any sharp ends are knocked off the bone. If you're dealing with poultry, I actually like shrink bags for poultry better than vacuum seal because a lot of time wing yes. bones and stuff are just going to inevitably poke holes. So a lot of folks that I know that do like pasture-raised poultry and sell it, uh, they like to do the shrink bags too. And most of the time a chicken's not going to sit around for two years in your refrigerator anyway or a freezer. So <laughs> it usually, you, that shelf life is less of an issue with poultry than it is with, I mean, you get a whole beef processed, you're probably going to have a steak a year later that's sitting in the bottom of your freezer. I do right now. I'm almost right. out, but I do, you know, <laughs> although I don't know if I have any steak left, but I sure have some roasts. Eh. Right. Next or time, the hamburger. Yeah. That's the thing. Everybody, everybody eats the steaks first and then they go on to yep. the roasts and the cutlets and the stew meat. And then they're like, man, I've got nothing left but hamburger because nobody wants to jump in and do that. That's the mistake everybody makes. They want to eat all the prime cuts first and then they get bored of it. <laughs> it's funny. Yeah. We, you got to get a, a different mindset than if you're just going to the store and you can buy anything you want whenever, you know, if you're getting a whole animal done, you start thinking, how can I use this whole animal? And we need to diversify what we're doing. Don't, it's not all steaks. You can't cut any animal into all steaks. <laughs> yeah. It, it's funny because that, you know, when people hear, I forget what I pay. I want to say it's five or $6 a pound right now. I'm not sure. I can't remember. It's, it's, it's a pretty good price, but it, you know, it's more it's than hamburger. Yeah. It's more than hamburger, but it's a lot less than steaks. And when you figure what you get, yep. Oh, it's, it's great. I love it. I, man, when I go and get oh, yeah. like five or six milk crates full of meat and I bring that home and yeah, I bring the everything at first. I just, Ooh. I didn't know any better. And I just say, okay, I just want steaks and roasts, you know, well, I didn't get the, I didn't get the, what is it? The, the ribs and I didn't, uh, the, the, the rib bones. And there was a whole bunch of stuff I didn't get that I didn't know I could get and it was free or included. Right. right. So that was, yeah. Oh, might have lost you again, Josh. Almost. No, not yet. Poor guy. We've been doing so good tonight, too. Still a little wonky. Yeah, no worries. We've been doing good. There you go. Yeah, you're better. Cool. Yeah. Well, 
see if I can check that connection real quick. But uh, around there, you here, go. You're good now. You're good. Sorry. Um, okay. No, you're fine. Around here, we've uh, we got a lot of folks that are starting to get into buying the quarters and halves of beef and everything like that, and they're looking at that price because it's usually based on hanging weight. Yeah. I think it's six, seven bucks a pound around here, which is a little higher than hamburger, like you said. But you got to realize too, it's an average. You're paying for the hamburger, but you're also paying for your tenderloins and your ribeye and stuff, which might be 20, 30 bucks a pound, depending on the grade of beef. So yeah. it's I, definitely worth it. And you get the choice, but you also end up with a lot of cuts that if you're not used to doing those odd second cuts that you see in the store all the time, you probably don't know what to do with them. So yeah, I've been trying to focus on my show a little bit on cooking here and there too, and throwing some recipes out. Cause there's a lot of stuff that people, a lot of odd cuts that people have never touched, just don't know how to use. Uh, Hunter says, you may have covered this, but can just tell a butcher a term that means I want everything basic cuts? Does that make basic sense? Basic cuts, okay. Yeah, kind of, sort of. Uh, it really depends on what you mean by basic cuts. If you're looking for like mostly steaks, you know, like a hog, like chops, roast, things like that, I think that's probably, uh, just tell your butcher basic cuts. So hold on a second. Poor guy. I, 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 yeah. But no, I, I'd say probably uh, just say steaks and roasts. Or if you like stew meat, tell them stew meat. Uh, I think the biggest confusion with a lot of folks are they think they can get something. They, they don't want any hamburger. You're going to have trim. You're going to have stuff that's going to need to be ground off that animal. Um, if you're not somebody that likes roasts, tell them that. If you would prefer to have all your prime steaks and just a bunch of hamburger, let them know. You know, Just communicate what you're looking for to that guy versus uh i mean if you say basic cuts that could mean different things to different people so just be as clear as with what you what, what you expect from it i'll throw in a little bit because we've i think we're three years into buying first we bought a quarter then we bought a half mm -hmm. and then we got another half and i will say from my experience the first time you do it you're not going to be happy with it or you you're gonna maybe not that you're not happy with it you're not you're gonna, gonna necessarily learn. know what you what to expect when you get it back you know you're not, yeah you're, it's it's gonna be a new thing there's a learning curve there i go in and she has this whole sheet and she's like okay uh, how big a hamburger packages do you want um what kind of roast what kind of steaks how thick your steaks uh, do you want the ribs i had no idea right. i said well just make it simple so then the next year <laughs> i realized well the second year and i realized i don't want roasts i want hamburger i want steaks I also right. realized that we want two pound hamburger packages, not one pound. Mm -hmm. So you, you learn those things as you, and I also learn, I kind of like an inch and a half steak or something in that size. Yeah. Yeah. You, but you don't so know. You'll, you'll learn that, that this is my preference now, but you've also got a, a whole quarter or half of a cow to eat through before you can make that choice next time. So it is a learning thing. And you, in a way you do got to eat your mistake until you, uh, until you get through it. But it, it, in a way though, it does, I think help people broaden their scope of learning how to cook different cuts yes. of things they didn't before. And maybe you got them cut a little thinner than you wanted to, but so you learned how to cook a thin steak, you know, for a while. You might have a preference, but I, I think, yeah, in, as long as you're a little bit adventurous in the kitchen, you'll probably be fine. And haul, haul your roasts out and slice them up, turn them into steaks if you want. I've done that before exactly. too. You know? Exactly. It depends on the, and that's another thing. If you are in a position where you're not raising animals right now, um, but you go to the store and you see whole pork loins for sale. You can get a around Christmas, you can get a rib roast, standing rib roast and stuff like that. You learn what cuts come out of that. That is a whole prime section, primal section of animal. So you get that pork loin. That's where your pork chops come from. You can lay that out on a board, cut those at home and save yourself a ton. Sometimes you can get pork loin for like a dollar a pound. 
It's yes. cheaper than buying the pork chops. Uh, a standing rib roast is just a big bone-in section of ribeye. You can get a, if you can get a boneless rib roast on sale, you get it, you might get it for six, seven dollars a pound when ribeyes are 13, 14 dollars a pound. You take that thing home, do a little bit of trimming, cut yourself steaks to your own thickness on your own kitchen counter, and there you go. You've got ribeyes for dirt cheap and a little bit of trim that you can run through your grinder or make into a stew meat or something like that. So there's a lot of things, a lot of ways that you can take those big sections of meat. A lot of times I steer folks who don't know towards getting more roasts because I always tell them, look, I can give you some instructions on how to cut those or come back and guide you through cutting those roasts in the steaks later. But I can't ever uncut it. You know, you might be able to pile <laughs> right. a bunch of ribeyes in your crock pot, but it's not going to be the same thing. If you want a roast, well, there's no replacement for a roast. But a roast can be steaks, a roast can be hamburgers, a roast can be cutlets, can be stew meat, you know. That's cool. I like that. Yeah. Because we, uh, I went the other night, I went and got two ribeyes and four sirloins and it was like right. $78. And we, But it's a local butcher shop. I, it, right. It's all local meat. It's great. But that's, mm -hmm. I know when I, you know, when we're out of steak and I go get steak, that's what I'm going to pay. So yep. I might as well go and premium product. Yeah. Yep. But it's worth it. <laughs> it definitely is worth it. Yeah. One of these days, one of these episodes on the podcast, I want to do, I'm just going to go when I can go buy like a whole ribeye section or a whole pork loin section, slap it down and be like, look, here is how you do that. But there's a lot of videos on that out there uh, as it is right now. Like you're talking about on uh, on TikTok, there's a guy that I've been following and he's real cool guy, not, uh, not uh, at all PG rated, but uh, he's, he's a butcher, works in a shop, like, you know, he's, he's just a regular meat cutter, but uh, he goes by Meat Dad on TikTok. Real okay. funny guy, uh, you know, got a real sense of humor, drops the F-bomb a lot, but That's okay. uh, he's, he's doing that a lot. He's showing people like, how, how here's how you can save some money and break down your own chicken. You know, buy a whole chicken, stop spending, you know, $5 a pound on boneless, skinless chicken breasts when you can do this. Here's how to take a whole ribeye section, cut it in the steak. So there's a lot of good education cropping up on that out there. And now, I mean, we're all walking around with computers in our pockets. We can look this up, up and, and educate ourselves. If I promise you, if you have a question on where does this cut come from or how does it get broken down, if you don't want to ask somebody like me, you can do a little bit of like, you know, Googling. And somebody has asked that question and shown you how to do it on YouTube by now, probably. Yeah, but you know what? Just also don't be scared. Like you said, a lot of people have done that stuff before. Do it anyway, man. I love yeah. seeing that. And the cool thing is people learn from different people. Oh, so absolutely. if they click with your personality, they'll follow you. And the more content like that we get out there, the better. You know, the more absolutely. we can educate and show people that. So no, I'm definitely going to do some of that. But but don't wait on me. I'm just saying if you're curious about something, I guarantee you the information is absolutely. out there now. So <laughs> Well, we've been gee, we've been an hour and ten, Josh. So oh, tell me, wh where do people find you? How do they? I mean, we've talked a little bit, but but plug the hell out of it. What do you? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, right now, probably if you're looking at the podcast type stuff, uh, you go to live.libertymeats.solutions. That's the whole website address. That's uh, where you're going to find pretty much uh, all of my stuff, my shows. Uh, when I update it all, I've usually got all the shows that I've interviewed or been on up there too, and uh, I should have all the different ways up there of all the different social medias places you can find me and contact me um if you really want to get in touch with me probably easiest way is telegram i'm there more than anywhere else uh you can find me at just liberty meat solutions and uh yeah we got the liberty meat chat just look that up that's a real good chat group a uh, great place to get a hold of me and then i've got uh, the other project going on right now i'm trying to launch a line of uh my own seasonings for my own recipes uh 
mostly sausage seasoning. We're going to do some other stuff down the line. We're starting it out. We're kind of crowdfunding it. And we're focusing on trying to do it with cryptocurrency because we're really kind of into that. And uh, it's Renegade Butcher. So that's that's been the goofy nickname. Couldn't believe the domain what, name wasn't taken. So I had to have it when I found it. But yeah, renegadebutcher.com. Go and check it. that out. And there's a bunch of other stuff up there too that's helping to help support all the website stuff I've been doing and getting the seasoning stuff launched too. So we've got a bunch of merchandise up there. I mean, we've got like, you know, like that flag there and this shirt I love that flag. and some stuff yeah. with the Renegade Butcher logo and stuff. And we got all kinds of stuff. We got coasters, cutting boards, all kinds of goofy things up there. So if you're interested in that, check it out. We're doing a membership program now too. Uh, nice. If you want to get in on the ground floor, cause you like what we're doing, I'm doing uh, only 100. We're capping it at hundred lifetime memberships. And I think it's like a hundred bucks, but it's, it's almost stupid what I'm doing, but it's, what's helping to get the seed money to launch everything. Uh, sure. I'll lose money on it eventually, but I'm taking care of the people who were there at the get go. Uh, and that's like 20% off for life, free shipping, two packs of seasoning a year on, you know, on the house type deal. And you're part of like the inner circle of when we come out with new stuff, you're going to be the ones that test it and try it first before we release it to the public type deal. So uh, that's that exclusive thing. And we're doing some other stuff like that. So that's all over there on renegadebutcher.com. And if you want to get into it and can't figure any of it out, just message me and we'll hook you up. I love that name, Renegade Butcher. That Everything <laughs> about that. I think that's your, man, that's your stick. It, yeah, it yeah, clicks. You know? It clicks. It yeah. works, you know. <laughs> ah, that's cool. No, I, I appreciate it. I, this was awesome. This is exactly what I wanted, man. Like, awesome. I wanted to hear your story. And I wanted you to share the shit out of how to get started in meat. And this was this yeah. was awesome. Yeah, it's a big topic, and uh, I I thought I was going to actually do a whole series the other day on the slaughter side of things, and found that I'm going to have to break it. The who knows, probably a five, six, seven part uh, podcast type thing, because it's such an in depth topic. I I take for granted a lot of stuff because it's what I do. So what I do in five minutes may take me eight hours to really sit there and break down and explain all the ins and outs of doing. So uh, I'm glad I can actually educate and show people that type of stuff. And I'm glad I'm able to get out here on some other podcasts and kind of push this stuff and and broaden the, the people who are – I don't want anybody out there to be raising meat or interested in getting into this or being more self-sufficient to look at it with – it's an intimidating thing. I don't want you to think the resources aren't out there. You can do this. You can learn this. You can do this yourself. Uh, and you're not going to do it as well as somebody who's been doing it their whole life or professionally. But there's no reason not to start. Absolutely, man. Well, thank you. I, yeah. I, I'd i love to have you back again in a few months. I yeah. think it'd be great. We'd do a follow-up. Yeah, it'd be yeah, awesome. We can, uh, we'll, we'll set it up one of these days. I know cool. you got a whole, uh, you got a whole, uh, pretty much a whole summer booked out now, don't you? I do. Yeah. I'm booked till <laughs> September 1st, I think, but I, I like to do that three months. Oh in yeah. Advance well, that's good. You kinda, that's good. That yeah. way, you know, you've got it lined up, you know, you got shows going. I enjoy it, you know, so, but thank <laughs> yeah. If you want to hang for a second in the background, I'll yeah, close up on. and okay, you cool. It, man. Thanks, Josh. I appreciate you having me on. Thanks. Thanks everybody for listening. Anytime. And you guys make sure you support Josh cause he's doing some awesome stuff. So thanks, Josh. Appreciate it, man. Thanks. Well, guys, I hope you enjoyed that. That is exactly what I wanted to do. I wanted to bring an expert on who could talk the bare bones, sorry about that pun, all about me and teach us where to start, what the hell to do, and just encourage because I think more than anything, Josh is an encourager. He's a teacher and an encourager, and that was awesome. So I hope you guys enjoyed it. We'll do a follow-up. If you've got a bunch of questions, I'm sure we can always send them his way and figure it out. From here, where do we go? Uh, uh, let's see. Tuesday night, I'm going to be on the Fireside Freedom. We're going to be talking about solar. 
And then Thursday, we'll be back. I'm doing a social media roundup. I got all kinds of questions, all kinds of tips from the community coming by for our Thursday night show. So drop by, same old time, 7 p.m. Mountain Time. You can do the conversion into your time zone from there. But guys, that's it for me this week. I know it's summer, and I still appreciate you guys coming and hanging out with me. So thank you. And as always, guys, stay happy, stay healthy, and have a great week.